Lieutenant Colonel Curtis Beecher, a 44-year-old career Marine and veteran of World War I action, with graying hair, a round jawline, and a pronounced Roman nose, looked out over Corregidor Island's tail, stretching out in front of him. He'd climbed to a vantage point on a late December day where he could see over the jungle foliage and inspect the area that his battalion had been ordered to defend. Some areas were lined by cliffs dropping straight into the water. The beach areas, though, that's where enemy forces could easily land and their troops come to shore. That's got to be around two miles of beach to defend, Beecher lamented to his second-in-command. We've got 350 Marines to do it. Yes, Colonel, the younger officer replied. It's an appalling task, but what else can we do? We'll need barbed wire for barriers, bunkers and tunnels dug, and tank traps if, God forbid, the Japanese manage to land tanks here. His second-in-command scribbled down Beecher's words. I don't think we'll have enough men or supplies to achieve this, so we'll have to get scrappy. Use our ingenuity to come up with other ways to defend these beaches. Their initial plans made, Beecher and the other man climbed down from their perch, heading for the protection of Melinda Tunnel, when Beecher thought of something else. We'd better get the men into their field positions quickly, before another wave of bombers comes over us. Beecher rounded up the Marines of 1st Battalion and explained the situation. They had to get started, build quickly, and avoid enemy bombardment, working through the night if needed, because these 350 U.S. Marines would be the first line of defense between a Japanese invasion and the fall of Corregidor Island. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm your host and researcher, Anastasia Harmon. My great-grandfather, Alma Salm, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. If you appreciate this podcast and believe it's important for people to know this relatively unknown part of World War II history, please consider sharing it with a friend. Word of mouth is the main way people find new podcasts, and by sharing, you're helping to keep these important stories alive. Today's episode covers the career of U.S. Marine Curtis Beecher, who started out as an enlisted man fighting in the trenches during World War I and ended his wartime experiences at a POW camp in Korea. During his nearly three and a half years as a prisoner of war, Beecher was the American camp commanding officer and was responsible for the well-being and lives of his men. We'll get a look at how the U.S. Marines, tasked with defending Corregidor's beaches from Japanese landing forces, prepared for the daunting task and get a glimpse of life on Corregidor Island while the battles were raging on Bataan. While researching Beecher's life, I came in contact with his niece, Jane Collins, who's the daughter of Curtis's younger sister. Jane met Curtis Beecher when she was very young, and we'll hear from her throughout the episode. Let's jump in. In 1897, on October 28th, Curtis Beecher was born in Chicago, Illinois. He was the oldest child and only son of Bryant and Grace Beecher's six surviving children. 
By 1910, when Curtis was 12 years old, the Beecher family had moved to Battle Creek, Michigan, where the father, Bryant, worked as a farmer on the family farm. Curtis's niece, Jane Collins, told me about the history of the Beecher farm in Battle Creek. When she refers to my grandfather, she's speaking of Curtis's father, Bryant. Also, the mother refers to Bryant's mother, Curtis's grandmother. My grandfather was a newspaper writer but my grandfather's father had had a farm in Michigan uh, near Battle Creek. After the mother died, he bought all the rest of the brothers and sisters out and then they went to the farm. So they kind of grew up living on that farm. In 1914, Curtis was a sophomore at Battle Creek Central High School where he played baseball and football. The school's yearbook said that Beach, as his friends called him, was a tackle worth of note who received and delivered many a blow, which was not soon dismissed from memory. But Curtis, even at that young age, wasn't a scholar. Here's Jane again. A very interesting thing about my Uncle Curtis, he would have admitted himself he wasn't a very good student, but my grandfather's sister was a very wealthy woman, and they traveled all over the world, and she had a son the same age as Uncle Curtis, and so he, for about two years, just traveled the world as a teenager. And he learned a lot of things. I mean, he went to school there and learned some languages and other stuff, which came in real handy when he was in the service. As World War I swept across Europe, 19-year-old Curtis joined the U.S. Marine Corps in April 1917. By fall of that year, he was in France with the American Expeditionary Force. That was the name for the U.S. forces on the Western Front during World War I. By June 1918, he was a platoon commander in the 6th Marines. And a couple months later, he received a battlefield commission and promotion to second lieutenant, which must have been a testament to his bravery and leadership. He participated in many of the most prominent World War I battles, including in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, which lasted 47 days and was part of the final Allied offensive of World War I. And it ended on Armistice Day, which of course is November 11th, 1918. That offensive remains the deadliest campaign in US history, claiming more than 300,000 casualties, including Lieutenant Beecher, who was wounded in action. For his service in the Great War, Lieutenant Beecher was awarded the French Croix de Guerre with a silver star for bravery in leading his platoon and later received the Silver Star Medal. By 1920, Curtis, at 22, was back in the United States, residing with his family near Chicago. And a year later, he was promoted to the rank of captain. He served with the Marines in Haiti from 1923 to 1926. Then he was sent to Shanghai, China from 1927 to 1929. Also in China at the same time was Frank Pizek, a U.S. Marine who I highlighted in the very first episode of this podcast. Pizek and Beecher's service would entwine several times both before World War II and during it. In May 1931, 34-year-old Curtis married divorcee Juanita Archiambo in Las Vegas. She was a couple years older than Curtis, and together they spent the 1930s at various Marine posts throughout the United States, while Curtis climbed the Marine officer ranks. 
By 1940, 42-year-old Curtis was a lieutenant colonel and the couple lived at the Marine Reservation in Quantico, Virginia. Lieutenant Colonel Beecher returned to Shanghai, China in August 1941 to again serve with the 4th Marines who had remained in the city since 1926 when Beecher had first served there with them. He became commanding officer of 1st Battalion and Frank Pysik was also again in Shanghai, part of the headquarters company. However, on November 14, 1941, just a few months after Beecher arrived in China, President Roosevelt ordered the 4th Marines to the Philippine Islands. Beecher later recalled, One could sense the tenseness in the air. There was a general feeling of uneasiness and uncertainty in the air. Beecher and 1st Battalion boarded the ship USS Madison, which arrived at Alangapo Navy Yard on Luzon, that's the Philippines' largest island, on November 30, 1941. Historian J. Michael Miller wrote, Unloading the 1st Battalion became a massive confusion as every non-commissioned officer tried to be the first to get his unit's gear on the lighter. Lieutenant Colonel Beecher, commanding 1st Battalion, observed the scene from the railing of the Madison and sent for one of his non-commissioned officers. Beecher told him, Duncan, go down and straighten that mess out. Get this stuff off and move it. Word of Beecher's displeasure was quickly passed and the unloading progressed smoothly. While stationed in Shanghai, the 4th Marines hadn't been able to participate in regular field training, so the regiment's leadership soon created a field operations training schedule, which called for Beecher's 1st Battalion to take up residence at Maravellas, which is on the very southern tip of Bataan Peninsula. Early on the morning of December 8, 1941, a mere nine days after arriving in the Philippines, Beecher led his men to the Alangapo Dock. Here's historian J. Michael Miller again. The 1st Battalion was awakened at 0300 to be ready for the daylight move to Maravellas at 0730. Power for the battalion's lights was cut with no explanation, and it readied for the move in blackness. The Marines were leaving the dock at Alangapo on board the USS Vaga when Beecher was formally informed of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The battalion sailed for the section base at Maravellas without air support. Beecher was concerned about a possible Japanese attack, but the 1st Battalion arrived without incident at 11.30. And thus went day one of World War II for Lieutenant Colonel Curtis Beecher. 1st Battalion remained at Maravellas during the first few weeks of the war doing field training and fortifying the naval base there, including constructing air raid shelters. In those first few weeks of war, however, Japanese air forces didn't attack Maravellas. Instead, as you likely already know, they focused on the airfields and crippling the U.S. Air Force presence on the island. But the Marines weren't completely immune from the symptoms of war. Historian Miller wrote, on 10 December, a Japanese force was reported approaching along the Bagak Road within 20 miles of the section base. Lieutenant Colonel Beecher, without delay, deployed the 1st Battalion into blocking positions along the highway. Only two Marines were left behind, a cook and the battalion armorer, who guarded the camp with two 50 caliber machine guns. The reports turned out to be false alarms and the battalion returned to camp. An average of six air raid alarms occurred daily, Lieutenant Colonel Beecher at first ordered his men to scatter at the sound of the air raid siren, but had to rescind the order as no work could be accomplished under the constant sirens. Work continued, siren or no siren. Air raid shelters were constructed, instructions issued in the event Japanese aircraft should appear, and blackout procedures were strictly followed. 
but no planes ever appeared over Maravellis. And in late December, while most U.S. forces on Luzon were withdrawing to the Bataan Peninsula, Colonel Beecher and 1st Battalion moved from Bataan Peninsula to the island fortress Corregidor, which was just a couple miles offshore from Maravellis. Corregidor Island was home to the U.S. Army's Fort Mills, which guarded the entrance to Manila Bay. This island is shaped like a tadpole swimming, with a rough circle, the head, on one end and a narrow, tapering tail coming off of it. The head is roughly one to one and a half miles in diameter, and the tail is about three miles long. I explained the island's topography in detail in the previous episode, that's number 35, and I've added some maps and pictures of the island to Facebook and Instagram if you're interested in knowing more about the island. Beecher's Battalion 1 arrived on the rock, as the men fondly called the island, on December 28th, completing their transfer around 10 p.m. Lieutenant Colonel Beecher watched a young private carrying a 96-pound box of ammunition down the dock. He stepped up to the young, sweating Marine and took the box out of his hand. Beecher then turned and dropped the box into the water, telling the private, You're carrying blanks. We're not using them anymore. 1st Battalion was joining the two other 4th Marine Battalions, swelling Corregidor's population to more than 10,000 servicemen and women. The 4th Marines brought six months of rations for 2,000 men, ammunition, a two-year supply of clothing, and medicine and equipment for Corregidor's hospital. While 1st Battalion's enlisted men took up residence in the Middleside Barracks, Beecher likely found accommodations in the officers' quarter in the area known as Topside which also boasted an officer's golf course and a movie theater. At 11 a.m., the day after 1st Battalion arrived on Corregidor, an air raid sounded. The Marines, as well as the Coast Artillerymen that they now bunked with, ignore the warning, as had become their habit. But soon, Japanese bombers and fighters appeared and attacked the island for the next two hours. The Middleside Barracks and the officer's area were heavily damaged, and the previous episode, number 35, details this bombing attack on Corregidor. Thus, the next day, 1st Battalion found a new home, field positions on Corregidor's tail portion. There is a large drop in elevation where the island's head and tail meet. This conjunction point is flat and at sea level, but then it climbs in altitude to form Melinta Hill. The U.S. had built a labyrinth-like tunnel system into the hill, with a main tunnel cutting west to east directly through the bottom of the hill. It's about two miles from the eastern tunnel entrance to the tail's end, and 1st Battalion was ordered to cover beach defenses for that entire portion. Beecher wrote, The task confronting us was appalling. With 350 men, there were 3,500 to 4,000 yards of possible landing beach to defend. But the daunting task didn't stop Beecher. He got his men right to work. Historian Miller related, Work began rapidly on construction of beach defenses. The Marines began to build barbed wire barriers, tank traps, bunkers, and trench systems. Working parties began at first light in the morning and halted only at noon for a rest period in place of lunch. The work progressed well, slowed only by Japanese shelling, bombing, and darkness. In the very beginning of January 1942, the Japanese bombed Corregidor for at least two hours per day for five days straight. 
Thereafter, through about the end of March, they bombed the island only sporadically, which allowed 1st Battalion to continue their beach defense preparation more easily. Let's go back to Miller again. Tools were carefully guarded. As one lieutenant remembered, We took care of our tools like gems. The Marines ran short of sandbags, so discarded powder cans from the coastal artillery guns were filled with dirt and used in their place. Bottles were filled with gasoline to make Molotov cocktails to be dropped over cliffs on the Japanese. Empty gasoline drums were filled with dirt and rock and set up as tank traps on trails leading from the beach. Each position was carefully camouflaged for protection, and dummy positions were also constructed to attract enemy fire. Marines of Company B located Army aircraft bombs, and wooden chutes were constructed to drop the bombs on landing areas. A second line of defense and reserve positions were also built behind the front-line beach defenses, with the hope of eventual reinforcement. The 4th Marines weren't the only ones fortifying the island. The Army Corps of Engineers were hard at work reinforcing installations and other areas of the island where the bombing runs had shown weaknesses. They built defenses for gasoline storage areas with two feet of reinforced concrete, put protections around the fresh water wells, and created tank obstacles, namely concrete posts with steel rails in them. The engineers taught the various gun battery men how to build tunnels. And the men got to work, perhaps even over eagerly. One artillery battery commander observed his men hard at work digging a protective tunnel and said, We have to be at our gun practically all the time, so we may not be able to spend too much time, if any at all, in a tunnel. Even the Marines caught the tunnel building fever and dug tunnels and made overhead protections in their beach defenses. An engineer stated, It is safe to venture a guess that if all the tunnels constructed on Corgador after hostilities commenced were connected end to end, the resultant summation would not be less than two miles. That's two miles of new tunnels on a four-mile island. And that didn't include the maze of existing tunnels already in Melinda Hill and underneath the topside portion of the island. Beyond digging, there wasn't a whole lot for the men on Corregidor to do during the war's first two to three months. In addition, supplies, so food, medicine, and other things, began to grow short, as was the case on Bataan. This was largely due to two factors. First, the Japanese naval blockade of the Philippine Islands made getting supplies in to the islands very difficult. Although some planes and submarines survived the gauntlet, and we'll talk about them in upcoming episodes. And second, the US's Pacific Fleet, of course, had been greatly damaged at Pearl Harbor. So there were few ships to send to fight through the blockade. That is, if the US government had chosen to take that course of action, which it didn't. World War II Pacific theater historian Lewis Morton wrote, Life on the island settled into a dreary routine. When the men were not building fortifications or going about their daily chores, they had little to do. Complaints were frequent and often dealt with the subject of food. The ration had been cut in half on 5 January, at the same time it had been cut on baton. The more enterprising of the men found ways of their own to increase the amount and vary the monotony of the ration. But the opportunities were fewer than on baton. Sunken or damaged barges washed close to shore offered a profitable field for exploitation during the early days of the campaign. 
One unit filled its trucks with a cargo of dried fruit salvaged from one such barge. Some even managed to procure liquor in this way. One barge had been loaded with whiskey from the Army and Navy Club. It was sunk in shallow water and many of the men spent their off-duty hours diving in the oil-coated waters in the hope of bringing up a bottle. Before the military police took over to relieve the lucky divers of their catch as they reached the shore, a large number of soldiers had laid in a stock of the precious commodity. The Philippines' president's yacht is also said to have supplied at least one unit with a store of fine wine. When it was being unloaded one dark night, it is reported that an officer directed the dockhands to load two trucks simultaneously. When the job was finished, one of the trucks silently disappeared into the night with its valuable cargo, never to be seen again. Life everywhere on the island went underground and the symbol of the new mole-like existence was Malinta Tunnel. During the bombings, it was always jammed with Americans and Filipinos who huddled back against the boxes of food and ammunition stacked along the sides to a height of six feet. Not all men were brave, and each garrison had a share of tunnel rats, the taunt reserved for those who never left the safety of Malinta Tunnel. Such men were said to have tunnelitis, a disease characterized by a furtive manner and the sallow complexion associated with those who live underground. For these men, those outside the tunnel had only contempt, tinged perhaps with envy. One serviceman who obviously wasn't a tunnel rat wrote of his feelings toward the men suffering from tunnelitis. We say that they'll lose tunnel credit if they're seen outside the tunnel. And we joshed him about the DTS medal, Distinguished Tunnel Service. If they gather plenty of tunnel credits, as opposed to shell-shocked, we say of confirmed tunneliers that they are shelter-shocked. An anonymous Corregidor Marine even referenced the subterranean life in alternate lyrics he composed for the Marine's hymn. First to jump for holes and tunnels and to keep our skivvies clean, we are proud to claim the title of the Corregidor Marines. Our drawers unfurled to every breeze from dawn to setting sun. We have jumped into every hole and ditch and for us the fighting was fun. We have plenty of guns and ammunition but not cigars and cigarettes. At last we may be smoking leaves wrapped in Nipponese propaganda leaflets. When the Army and the Navy looked out Corregidor's Tunnel Queen, they saw the beaches guarded by more than one marine. As February turned to March in 1942, the Tunneliers had more reasons to stay underground. Japanese artillery began shelling Corregidor Island from stations near Cavite, which was about nine or so miles across Manila Bay. The shells could reach Corregidor, but they did not do significant damage, and overall, the first two months of 42 were relatively quiet on Corregidor. Then, in late March, Japan's General Homa, who was over all Japanese forces in the Philippines, began a heavy aerial bombardment of Bataan and Corregidor that preceded his last infantry assault on Bataan. His plan called for the heavy bombardment to start on March 24th, and one of the major objectives of that bombardment was to cut the supply line between Bataan and Corregidor. The plan called for a number of small planes to bomb Corregidor every few hours around the clock. In order to demoralize the enemy and to boost the fighting spirit of our army. In addition, Japanese artillery fired their large guns at Corregidor every half hour throughout the night. The Marines, especially those encamped on Corregidor's tail, 
and thus closer to the Japanese artillery in Cavite, named the artillery cannon Insomnia Charlie. And indeed, that was the Japanese goal, to prevent the island's defenders from getting rest, thus furthering demoralization. An air raid siren sounded at 9.24 a.m. on March 24, 1942. A minute later, the first of nine bombers flew over Corregidor, dropping 550 and 1,100 pound bombs. The first wave of attacks lasted nearly two hours. In total, five air raid alarms would sound that day, and all of them were followed by at least some amount of bombing. The final all clear came at 10.34 p.m. And then it started all over again early the next morning. These aerial attacks lasted nine days, and each day they followed a similar pattern as what happened on March 24th. But not all the attacks were hours long or included massive bombs. Small groups of planes flew over Corregidor every two to three hours, all day and all night, to carry out the psychological warfare and destroy the strong points without failure. Historian Lewis Morton wrote, For the men on Corregidor, it seemed as though they were living in the center of a bullseye. During the last week of March, there were about 60 air raid alarms lasting for a total of 74 hours. Bombings begun in the morning were usually resumed in the afternoon and again at night. Since the Japanese planes were now based on Clark Field or near Manila, they were able to remain over the target for longer periods than they had during the first bombardment in December. The effect of so heavy a bombardment might well have been disastrous had not the men built underground shelters. They had also learned how effectively sand could cushion the blow from a bomb and had made liberal use of sandbags. It used to be hard to get men to fill sandbags, wrote one officer. Now it is hard to keep them from laying hands on all the sandbags available and filling them when those to whom they are allotted aren't looking. The small number of casualties is ample evidence of the thoroughness with which the Corregidor garrison had dug in since the first attack on 29 December. The damage from this nine-day bombardment was not as extensive as it could have been due to all of Corregidor's tunnel digging and bombproofing. But most buildings above ground were completely demolished. Then, in the first days of April, the Japanese turned their full attention on Bataan, and Corregidor had a short reprieve. But after Bataan surrendered on April 9th, the Japanese turned that full attention to Corregidor Island. They brought their larger artillery guns to the southern part of Bataan, where they could much more easily reach Corregidor, and were also in range of Corregidor's guns. And thus, the final siege of Corregidor began. During the last days before Bataan fell, Corregidor saw its population increase as Navy men and some Philippine scout units, as well as anyone who escaped from Bataan to Corregidor, arrived on the island. Most of these men were assigned to Marine units to assist in beach defenses. Episode 26 details two last-minute escapes from Bataan to Corregidor, which included that of my own great-grandfather, Alma Salm. With all these new additions, Lieutenant Colonel Beecher found himself commanding 1,024 men. It included 360 Marines and roughly 500 Filipino soldiers, 100 American sailors, and 100 American soldiers. These men were armed with pre-World War I rifles, some grenades, about 12 machine guns, and a smattering of other weapons. 
The men were even able to scrounge a few 50 caliber machine guns off of immobilized ships. Also, I've run across a number of humorous stories about the Navy men assigned to fight on the beach defenses. One story even has a sailor asking his commanding officer, where do the bullets go in this gun? Navy men, as it turns out, were not trained for ground combat. Historian J. Michael Miller wrote that by May 1st, The Japanese shelling caused serious damage to the beach defenses and casualties among the officers and men of the battalion, but most of the heavy weapons were still intact. Far more serious was the loss of the water supply and a complete loss of the field communication lines. Caches of rations were buried or received direct hits from lucky shells. The area held by the 1st Battalion was heavily wooded when first occupied in December and dotted with coastal artillery barracks and other buildings. By early May, the area was completely barren of vegetation and scattered with the ruins of shelled buildings. One sergeant later remembered, there was dust a foot thick covering the entire area. On 1 May, Beecher had reported to Colonel Howard that the beach defenses on the eastern portion of the island were practically destroyed by the Japanese bombardment and that the repair under the continuing fire would be impossible. Beach wire had been repeatedly holed, tank traps filled in, and all the heavy guns of the 1st Battalion were in temporary emplacements, as the initial ones had been spotted and destroyed by the enemy. The Japanese fire was so accurate that men could be fed only at night. Colonel Howard told this to General Wainwright, who said only that he would never surrender. When Howard told Beecher this, he replied, I pointed out to Colonel Howard that nothing had been said about surrender. I was merely reporting conditions as they existed in my sector. At 11 p.m. on May 5th, Japanese landing boats were spotted offshore at North Point on Corregidor, which was within Beecher's 1st Battalion's area of defense. With the field communications completely down, Beecher sent a runner to all his company commanders, alerting them of the landings. Soon, however, Japanese infantry were landed and moving inland, and the Marines needed more reinforcements to halt the advance. Beecher activated his reserve battalion of 30 Philippine scouts, and Marines from the Milinta Tunnel were sent to boost the 1st Battalion's strength. I'm going to focus on details of this invasion in a few episodes from now. So to be brief here, the Japanese landing forces continued to push westward toward Melinda Hill. They landed their tanks around 8.30 a.m. on May 6th, and that was pretty much the end of the beach defenses on Corregidor. The Marine units, who had suffered heavy casualties in the ground combat, retreated to the relative safety of Melinda Hill. Historian Miller wrote, Lieutenant Colonel Beecher moved outside the tunnel, shepherding his men back to Melinda Hill. He knew his men would be thirsty and hungry and ordered a sergeant, Duncan, to see what you can do about it. Duncan broke open the large army refrigerators near the entrance to Melinda Tunnel and soon was issuing ice-cold cans of peaches and buttermilk to the exhausted Marines. At 12 noon, the white flag was raised over Corregidor. Lieutenant Colonel Curtis Beecher and what remained of 1st Battalion were now prisoners of war. The Corregidor POWs were first encamped at a small coastal area on the island called the 92nd Garage, which was located on the island's tail. The men were there for about three weeks with little food and practically no water. They slept under scraps of canvas tarp, which also offered some protection from the sun. 
From there, they were shipped, trained, and then marched to the Cabanatuan POW camps, about 85 miles or 136 kilometers north of Manila. Lieutenant Colonel Beecher served as the American camp commander there from June 1942 through October 1944. As the American camp commander, he was a prisoner, but he was also tasked with making sure that his POWs, who were mainly Americans, followed camp rules. He also created what we could call a camp oversight committee, selecting other officers to help oversee camp duties and needs. These officers included Major Frank Pisic, who was also captured on Corregidor. Pisic was the statistical and personal officer at the camp, which meant he kept many of the camp records. And thanks to Beecher's organization, there are quite a few existing records about life at Kabanatuan, which was the largest of Japan's World War II era POW camps. In October 1944, after nearly two and a half years at Kabanatuan, Beecher, Pisic, and around 1,500 other POWs, who were the healthiest and most robust of the 2,000 or so POWs remaining at Cabanatuan, were removed from the camp and sent to Manila to await transportation to work camps in Japan. On December 13th, 1,620 POWs were jammed into three holds of the transport ship Oroko Maru. Now I've talked about this disastrous journey in several episodes. In fact, Beecher is the ninth POW I've highlighted who was part of this atrocious war crime. Only three of these nine men survived the journey. Beecher, Major Frank Pisic, and Lieutenant Chet Brett, whose story I told in episode 34. During the journey's first couple of days, Lieutenant Colonel Beecher was the American commanding officer in the Oroko Maru's forward hold. The men were packed in so tightly and the air so hot, humid, and rancid that the men began to yell and scream and attack each other to get closer to air sources. As CO, Beecher tried to calm the men and maintain some semblance of order, but his efforts accomplished little. No, it was the American planes attacking the ship that finally quieted the men. Those American planes destroyed the Oroko Maru and the prisoners had to swim to shore. They were eventually loaded into two other ships bound for Formosa, which is present-day Taiwan. Once in Formosa, one of those ships was attacked and destroyed by American planes, and their survivors were transferred to yet another ship, which took them to Japan. The death rate for this trip was astronomically high, and by the end, Lieutenant Colonel Beecher was the de facto commanding officer. A newspaper later reported that Commanding his men, he believes, helped him keep his mental stability. And mental stability was absolutely something he would have needed on this 48-day journey to be able to endure some of the most inhumane conditions imaginable. As the ship finally neared Japan, Beecher, who by this time was, in the words of an aide, quote, gaunt, matted, gray, and weak, close quote, was approached by a serviceman who asked, What are you thinking about, Colonel? Beecher then responded, I was remembering a fellow I heard talk after the last war. He described how the Armenians made their march of death with the Turks driving them along. I was wondering whether it could have been any worse than this. Their clothing, mainly rags used as loincloths by the end of the journey, offered no protection from the freezing temperatures as the ship headed north in midwinter. In addition, there were no blankets in the ship's hold so the POWs slept close together, 
holding hands with other men for additional warmth. Beecher later told a newspaper, When one turned over, we all turned. The ship arrived at Moji, Japan on January 29, 1945, and the Japanese officials who met the ship there were themselves stunned by the appearance of the 550 men who were still alive. A survivor stated, They tried hard not to show it, but you could see that they could not help being shocked. The Japanese officials asked to see the American commanding officer. When Lieutenant Cole Beecher walked out, his shirt clotted with filth, a dirty towel wound around his brow, his beard and hair handing down and gave them a feeble sort of salute. You could see that the Moji officials were taken aback. It was midwinter, the temperatures just above freezing. The Japanese lined the prisoners up on the deck and ordered them to strip naked. They were then sprayed with disinfectant from blowguns. Hair, face, beard, and then the whole shivering body. Once in Japan, Beecher was sent to Fukuoka Camp Number 1. This camp, which the prisoners called the Pine Tree Camp because of a grove of pine trees near the camp, was new, the building still under construction. Arriving in midwinter, the POWs endured the winter weather in small, unheated barracks where they slept on sand. Within months, however, American bombings of Japan soon forced yet another prisoner move. On April 25, 1945, Lieutenant Colonel Beecher and about 140 other prisoners left the Pine Tree Camp and were ferried to Korea. A train ride across the Korean Peninsula brought them to the Jinsen POW Camp near present-day Seoul, Korea. Life at the Jinsen Camp was probably the best Beecher experience during his nearly three and a half years as a POW. Morale seems to have been better here than at the other camps and the Japanese official governing this camp was even later described as kind by former POWs. Beecher spent four months at Jinsen until it was liberated in early September 1945. Curtis Beecher, by now nearly 48 years old, had been a prisoner for three years and four months. He was soon on board a U.S. ship and bound for home. On September 12, 1945, Curtis's wife Juanita received a telegram delivering the long-awaited news of his liberation. His father joyfully welcomed Curtis home in Detroit later that month. The poignant moment was captured in a photograph. Curtis's niece, Jane, told me, There was a picture that won a prize in the Daily News in Chicago of my grandfather greeting him when he did come back from World War II. The image truly is memorable, and it proves that no one ever grows too old or too high-ranking to not be their parent's child. I've put it on Facebook and Instagram, and I think it's absolutely worth viewing. Curtis's mother, Grace, however, was not there. My grandmother, I knew he was a prisoner, but she died before he came home, which was sad. Curtis and Juanita spent Thanksgiving with his sister in Olivet, Michigan. Indeed, there was much to be thankful for this year, and he couldn't help but compare it to Thanksgiving Day the previous year, when he was at Bilibid Prison in Manila waiting to be put on the Oroca Maru. It was just another day for him. His internment had taken a toll, though, and during that trip he was on hospital leave because he was still suffering from beriberi and working to regain the 50 pounds he had lost during his captivity. In June 1946, Curtis ended his 29-year career in the Marines. He had dedicated nearly three decades of his 48 years to military service, 
fought in two world wars, and served in locations around the world. Juanita and Curtis settled near Roseburg, Oregon in the late 1940s, where they would spend their retirement years. He remained active though, and in 1950, he was working 10 hours a week on a farm. I'm not certain if it was his farm or another person's. The remainder of Curtis's family seems to have remained in the northern Midwest, and while Curtis and Juanita were removed from them, they were able to visit sometimes. The family had a summer home near Rhinelander in northern Wisconsin. Here's Jane again. They built the summer home in 1927, so he spent a lot of time here when I was just a baby. He would come here for a lot, but after my mom died, I don't recall him ever visiting here. On February 27, 1984, at the age of 86, Curtis Beecher passed away in Oregon. The flags of Roseburg flew at half-mast that day. He rests at the Roseburg National Cemetery with his wife Juanita, who had passed away about five years previous. Curtis and Juanita never had children of their own, but the extended Beecher family continues to honor his legacy. Curtis's niece Jane told me, Everybody's very proud of him, so in my family, all the younger cousins that have never met him, but they still are aware of what he did. One of the latest of the little babies born in the family's middle name is Curtis. My cousin Sarah, apparently she impressed her grandchild enough talking about Curtis that she chose to use his name for her little boy's middle name. Lots of Curtises. I had a cousin, Kurt, and then the next generation there were two Curtises. There were people named after him. And there are tangible reminders of Curtis as well. We're all aware of what he did. I have two daughters who have children now, and we'll pass on what we can say. I think I have his helmet, it's out, I, I keep it out. So it's sort of a part of this place forever. He was always a big hero, so I guess he still is in a lot of ways. Truly, Curtis Beecher was a remarkable leader a heroic man who dedicated much of his life to serving his country. In April 1942, while Lieutenant Colonel Beecher was preparing to defend the Kurgador beaches, a young serviceman was seriously wounded on baton and, just a couple days later, was immobile in a field hospital bed when U.S. forces surrendered to the Japanese. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Curtis Beecher's story on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are all in the show description. If you'd like to know more about the Marines on Corregidor, I suggest the book From Shanghai to Corregidor, Marines in Defense of the Philippines by J. Michael Miller. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you'll know when I drop a new episode. And consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Paul Sutherland, Mike Davis, Tyler Harmon, and Jake Harenberg. Special thanks to Jane Cullen for her time, research materials, and pictures. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And I'll be back next time with life as a wounded serviceman in an enemy-controlled field hospital. Music